Good morning. Welcome. <laughs> My name is Ron. I'm one of the pastors here. While we're doing this, how many of you all lost power this last week? Did that feeling when the worship thing happened and kind of a little PTSD, right? Like, oh, we're going to have to sing this whole thing uh, with our own voices. So we actually, we lost power for like almost two days. That was no fun. Yeah, like who was the worst? Who had the worst of it? Anybody have the worst of it? Anybody more than two days? Anybody three days? Four days? Ben wins the award, the Powerless Award. No, yeah, I'm sorry about that. I have um, a couple of announcements to make this morning. Uh, the first one is uh, a bit of a sad one in that Bobby, who leads worship with us, uh, this will be his last day at church today. I know, it's a little shocking. Bobby's been a part of this church a long time. I've known Bobby a very long time. He's been part of this church a long time. Bobby actually sang in Amanda and My Wedding. That was a little while ago. We won't say what, when it was. But, um, but the great thing is that Bobby got married. I don't know if you knew this or not, but Bobby got married at the end of December. And as many of you know what it means when you're married, you make compromises. And uh, Bobby and his wife, Jenny, have decided that they're going to go and start attending her church, which is across the bay. It's actually a church that her brother leads, so there's an extra element of family connection there. And so they're going to start going to that church together. And so uh, we really just appreciated Bobby and love Bobby and wish him the very best. And so, in fact, there's a couple things. Uh, Ian set up a table in the back where there's some cards. And so after the service, if you want to go and write a card or say something to Bobby and just bless him and thank him or just things, I mean, he served our church in so many ways, um, please feel free to do that. And also, there will be a prayer time for Bobby uh, outside to my left um, that Susan, so Susan's going to come back from Lord's Grace and she's going to lead that prayer time for Bobby. And so if you know Bobby and would love to bless him, we just really as a church want to bless Bobby and his, and his wife Jenny as they uh, are off to, they're still part of the family, they're just going to be at a different different place in that. So, so that's the first thing. And then the second thing is I want to uh, announce or introduce uh, Eric and Christy Mae Jesse, who are here visiting. I think there's Christy Mae in the back. But they, are, they were part of this church a long time ago. In fact, I would almost call them maybe sort of close to founding members of the church. Eric and Christy, would you mind standing up? And so they are visiting us this morning from Kansas City, Missouri, and they're with their daughters, Joanna and Julia. And so it's really great to have them back. And in fact, I think for those who know you guys, maybe you're having lunch afterwards and inviting people to grab lunch together. And so if you know the Jessies and would like to join them for that, they are going to be joining and grabbing lunch afterwards somewhere. Um, so good to have you guys. Thanks for, for being here. Well, so uh, I have entitled my sermon this morning, Battle in the Garden. How many of you have gardens? Anybody like gardens, have gardens? I have a garden. doesn't look great right now. Dogs have been digging in it. But generally... It's supposed to be a nice garden with flowers and, you know, sometimes vegetables and things like that. Um, gardens are usually places, I would think, of natural beauty, right? Natural beauty, maybe places of peace. You often think of going to a garden when you want to rest, right? Get some relaxation in a garden. We don't think of gardens as battlegrounds. But in the Bible, the two most important battles in the history of the world were fought in gardens. The two most important battles in the history of the world were fought in gardens. At the beginning of time, the beginning of human history, there was a garden, the Garden of Eden. And in that garden, two humans were tempted to distrust God, the God who made them. And in that process, they didn't ask God for help. 
or his opinion as they were making a decision, they simply decided among themselves that God was somehow holding out on them, he was not trustworthy in some way, and that they had a better path for their lives. And so they disobeyed God by eating fruit from a forbidden tree. And this disobedience of Adam and Eve, through that disobedience, sin and death came into the world. And it's a sin and death that we still experience today. Now today, we're in a series called Suffering Servant and Conquering King, and we're going to look at the story of another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And in this garden, there's another human, representing all of us, who is also tempted to distrust God. But this human asked God for help, and he chose to trust God and to obey God. And the sin and death that had come in through the disobedience of the first humans was overcome and defeated by the obedience of this man, Jesus, who called himself the Son of Man. So let's read this story together that we find in the book of Mark, chapter 4, verses 32 through 42. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. As we look at this passage together, we're going to talk about it in three different parts. We're going to talk about Jesus' mission. We're going to talk about Jesus' mortality. And we're going to talk about Jesus' model. His mission, his mortality, and his model. But before we do that, I want to pray for us. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just come before you, and wherever we are this morning, we just come to you and we say, Lord, show us more of who you are. Help us to learn from this story. Help us to learn from your example. Help us to learn from the struggle that happened in this garden. I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to hearing from you in a new way. I pray you'd speak your word to us in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so we've been going through the, the gospel of Mark, kind of bouncing around a little bit, kind of going through it, but not catching every piece of it in this series that we've been doing. So right before our passage today, what's happened is Jesus has gone into Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, and he's celebrated the Passover dinner meal with his disciples together. And during that meal, he tells them again that he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be killed, and he's going to rise again. And you know, this is something he's been telling the disciples for some time now. Kind of as he's ramped up to this time, he's been telling them more and more that he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be killed, and he's going to rise again. And there's this message of a suffering servant that his disciples really struggle to hear. They don't really want to get that. They really want the conquering king portion of it, but yet he's telling them about this 
suffering servant. But now this time has actually come. They've had their meal, and now they've gone out, and they've gone to a familiar place. And this place is called a garden. It's the garden. It's an olive garden called Gethsemane, and it's a place that Jesus used to go to a lot. And in fact, he knows that Judas knows that this is where he's going, and yet he still goes there for the purpose of what he's going to do. And it's dark. It's late at night. It's after the meal. We don't know exactly when, but it's probably around midnight. You kind of get this sense of drama that's going on, but we see what's going on for Jesus, why he's there. In the first verse, it says why he's come to this garden. It says he has come to pray. It's come to pray. Now, it's interesting. It's, it's kind of similar in some ways as we look to what's going on here in this part of the story. It's similar to what we saw a couple of weeks ago in the Transfiguration story. If you remember, Susan preached about that. For some reason, she included me being an FBI agent in that. I'm not sure what that all was about, but yeah, okay, I'm not, just so you know, there's no helicopters to me going around. But it's sort of like what's going on, because in the Transfiguration, he left his other disciples, and he, put, he brought three of his closest ones along with him, and so that's what he's doing again. He tells the eight to kind of stay here, and then he brings Peter, James, and John along with him, sort of closer with him. These are the same ones who had just seen this transfiguration. Right before their very eyes, they'd seen Jesus glowing and transfigured in front of him. And they'd heard God say, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. I wonder, as they're being called forward, I wonder if there might be an expectation on their part that maybe something similar is going to happen. Maybe this is the point when the legions of angels are going to appear and they're going to march on Jerusalem. But instead of the conquering king... What they see is the suffering servant. And what it says here is that Jesus becomes deeply distressed and troubled. Now, the translation that's being used here is actually a little weak, if you look at this, because it's not really strong enough. The Greek word that's used in the book of Mark really actually kind of means to be terrified or horrified. Jesus is terror-stricken. It's almost like you can imagine his eyes are open wide, and he's just distressed, it says. He's so distressed that he says, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death, with sorrow to the point of death. It really seems a little bit like Jesus is losing it. I mean, this in-control Jesus, not that long ago, this is the in-control Jesus who, when the crowd was going to stone him, he calmly walked through them and left. This is the confident Jesus who was in this temple, and he turned over the tables of the money changers, even though there are guards all around. Suddenly, that confident Jesus seems to be frozen. This powerful Jesus who, not long before this, raised Lazarus from the dead, called him out of the tomb, seems overcome. For most of us, I think, actually, this is a point in the story where it kind of helps us to feel a little more connected to Jesus maybe even encourage. Why? Because Jesus really feels very human here. He's showing fear, he's showing stress, maybe even a little bit of doubt. And we go, ah, oh, okay, I get that. I know what that feels like. And all that's true for this story, and we're going to talk more about that, I actually think the reaction that we see from Jesus here is less about his frail humanity, and it's more about the mission that God has asked him to take upon himself. It's more about the mission that God has given to him. Up to this point, Jesus has been dealing with a lot of challenges and stress. There's been a lot going on for Jesus. There's been crowds, clamoring crowds, some come and some go. He's had sneaky enemies the whole time. He's had doubters, even among his own closest family, has not even believed in him. And he's handled it pretty well. We've seen Jesus kind of manage that fairly well. But now, as Jesus is facing his death, he seems terrified. 
He's terrified. What is throwing Jesus for such a loop here? What is throwing Jesus for such a loop here? I think it is reasonable, and I've thought of this a lot for myself, is that he's reacting to kind of the prospect of the physical torture that he's going to go through. What he's going to experience is so horrible from a physical perspective. The movie, The Passion of the Christ, if you've ever seen that, gives a little glimpse of that, of, the, of kind of the horrible type of death that Jesus is about to go through from a physical sense. But, you know, even so, we do have examples in history, especially of Christians who've actually gone to very painful deaths who seemed maybe even a little calmer in this process than Jesus seems to be. In AD 155, there was a Christian bishop of the city of Smyrna named Polycarp who was sentenced to be burned alive at the stake. He was given a last opportunity to recant his faith in Jesus. Even his daughter was asking him to recant, but he wouldn't do it. And this was his reply. You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. Okay. I would say in modern language, it's a little bit like you can know what you, you, can, know what you can do with the fire he got there. I think that's kind of what he's telling them. Even there's stories of Christians in Rome who are being sent to their deaths to be torn apart by the lions who are singing hymns when they go to their deaths. Yet Jesus seems undone. What is it that's terrified and horrified Jesus so deeply in this story, in this point? I think the answer we see here comes a little bit later in verse 36, because this is what Jesus says. He asks his father, he says, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. This cup is a term that is well understood in Jewish theology at the time, that the cup typically and almost always refers to God's anger and punishment for sin, to God's wrath against sin. It's mentioned time and again by the Old Testament prophets. So in Isaiah 51, 17, it says this. Isaiah is speaking this. He says, Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drained to its dregs, the goblet that makes people stagger. Jeremiah 25, 15 through 16 says this. This is the prophet Jeremiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I send among them. Even in Psalms, what you think of as like, you know, they're songs that we kind of sing and stuff like that. Psalm 75, 8 says, In the hand of the Lord is a cup, full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out on all the wicked of the earth, drink it down to its very dregs. The mission that Jesus has been given by his Father is to take upon himself to actually drink of this cup of wrath that is being mentioned here, this punishment for wrongdoing that has to be executed by a righteous God against sin and evil. This mission is a mission that no one has ever had to face before him or ever will afterwards. This is a significant mission. Now, let me just step back for a second and say, you know, I think we struggle, or maybe, especially in our modern sensitivities, we don't like this idea of God's wrath. We'd rather talk about God's love and his mercy, but the reality is, if God is truly loving, if he's truly a loving God, and he's truly a holy God, he must get angry at sin and evil. He must get angry at sin and evil. Otherwise, he wouldn't be loving because he wouldn't really care. I think, I think we kind of get that. I mean, as a parent, I can understand that. And maybe for those 
who understand if, if injustice happens, and let's say an example, maybe a child is abducted and is killed, we don't expect the parents to kind of go, well, that's how life goes. Oh, well, sorry that happened, but, you know, we're just going to move on. And if somebody did it, well, they just can keep living and do whatever they want to do. We don't expect, if their parent responds that way, we kind of go, what? Did they love their kid? What's with that? Don't they care? A caring, loving parent must be angry at sin and evil, at injustice that's done to or by its children. The parent would demand justice, would we not? We've seen so many times that we demanded justice because we know something's wrong and it has to be dealt with. And that is what happens with a holy, loving God. He hates sin and everything that it involves, and it has to be punished because it hurts his children. He can't just let it go. If, he were a loving, if he's a loving God, he can't just let it go. And we know that the ultimate expression of God's wrath against sin is something we call hell. It's an experience of eternal punishment where those who ignored and rejected God will spend eternity separated from him. And it's this wrath, it's this eternal punishment and separation from God and everything that good, everything that we know that is good is from God. That is what Jesus is actually getting a glimpse of in the garden. That is actually what Jesus is beginning to get a feeling for and a, and a glimpse of. This separation, this punishment from his God that's going to happen. That's why when he's on the cross, we hear him say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That relationship is broken. The relationship that he's been with for his father for eternity is, is broken. And for the son who's always been with the father and who's never done evil, never been separated, this glimpse into hell terrifies him. This glimpse into this judgment terrifies him. I actually don't think it's necessarily the crown of thorns or the flogging or even the nails as much as it is this horror of the judgment and the separation from the wrath of God that is one that is terrifying Jesus. This vision, this glimpse of the judgment is so intense that Luke tells us he causes him to sweat, sweat even drops of blood or drops like blood. And this is on a cold night. This experience of what's going to happen, this wrath that he has to drink is so overwhelming that it says it overwhelms his soul. And so I think our lesson is this, that Jesus went through hell so that those who follow him won't. Jesus went through hell so that those who follow him won't. You know, I am actually continually amazed at people in our world who give so much thought to things like vacation planning or their school or career planning or even their retirement planning, but don't seem to give a lot of thought about what happens to them after they die. I have a really good friend of mine who I really love, and we have these conversations together. He's not a follower of Jesus, and he is a planner. He, uh, he actually makes sure everything is done, like, like he told us about this trip he planned, and like all the things that he got right, and he made sure it was all going to happen. He's like, here, I'll give you the, the list. It was this big, long list thing. But I've asked, I, when I asked him about this thing, I'm like, what do you think happens when you die? What's going to happen there? He was like, eh, I think it'll be fine. I'm a pretty good guy. I think it'll all work out okay. It's like, wait. Yet Jesus looked out at the judgment that happens for those who ignore or reject God, and it terrified him. It terrified him. And that is the mission that God gave to him, was to come onto the earth and to take that hell upon himself 
the righteous wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to, so that we didn't have to take that on ourselves. And this is intense. I mean, guys, get the sense of this, right? You sense how hard this is for Jesus. This distress is so great. And I think this is now, when we see the mission for Jesus, we begin to also see the mortality of Jesus, both the mortality of him facing his death and the mortality of being fully human. And we see what happens. Jesus sees this and he's like, Dad, there's got to be a better way. We see in this, this verse, he says, Abba. This is a term that Jews did not use at that time. That is such an intimate term for God. And he says, Dad, it's like saying Daddy. He's like, Daddy, can you find another way to fix this problem? Can you please? Because this is terrifying. Is there a better way to do this? Is there some other way to do this? Have you ever had that kind of type of thing happen to you? Maybe not in this exact example, but you've got something coming up and you're thinking about it and it seems like it might be a little scary, but as you get closer to it, you realize, oh, wow, it's kind of intense. Now, I have to be honest, how many of you are skydived or bungee jumped? Anybody? No one wants to admit it? Okay, some of you are admitting it. I see it, half hands, I get it. You, and the good news is you all lived. At least you... <laughs> So we can see, I've never done it. So I have to be honest, I've never done it. I, I would be willing to try, but I haven't done it. Um, but I had an example where I saw a, a, a video of Joe Montana. Joe Montana, Joe Cool. Now, by the way, my wife laughs at me. She's like, how many times do you talk about Joe Montana in sermons? I think it's three. I do like the guy. He's a good guy. Great quarterback. The kind of guy, they called him Joe Cool, right? Because when pressures were up, he would be able to handle it. He would pull the games out at the last minute. That was what he was known for. 300-pound guys would be coming at him. No big deal. He would just do his thing. Well, there's a video of Joe Montana trying to do bungee jumping in a canyon hundreds of feet deep. He's got the bungee, jumps, you know, bungee cord strapped to his feet. He's standing on the ledge, and he can't do it. He's like, <laughs> you want me to dive off this thing? He's backing up. His kids are pushing him. He's backing up. Kids are pushing him. I mean, maybe like Joe, this is what Jesus is going through a little bit. He's realizing now, oh, my gosh. This is terrifying. This is terrifying. How can I do this? All this weight and this cruel punishment that I'm going to go to, this is too much, Dad. I can't do this. Dad, is there any other way? I don't want this to fall on me. Could we find another way to do this? That's why Jesus, I think, even though he's perfect, we can relate to him and he can relate to us as humans. Because we know that he's experienced the things that we've sometimes experienced. Maybe you've had a thing in your life where you said, God, this is too much. I don't think I can handle this. Maybe you've said, look, God, I think this plan isn't a good one. I'd love to have a different plan from you on this, okay? I don't really like the plan we're on right now, so would love a change. I think we see here Jesus' mortality, his humanness, his humanity in a unique way. And we see it also... Notice how he goes back and forth to his friends. Do you see this back and forth going on that's going on here? You know how that is. When you're in great times of stress, I think you're looking for support. You're looking for a little encouragement from your friends. This mission for Jesus is really lonely. And he'd like some others alongside of him. And he goes back, and his disciples are falling asleep. I mean, have you ever felt like that? The value of a friend. You want a friend in the middle of what's going on in your life helping you just to be there with you. Maybe they can't solve your issue, but you need them with you. And I think this may be also why Jesus gets upset with his disciples when he finds them asleep. He's in great agony, and his disciples are struggling to stay awake. So not only is Jesus being betrayed, 
But then the close friends to him can't even stick with him for an hour while he's going through one of the hardest times, the hardest time in his whole life. I think this humanity, this mortality of Jesus is really important because what it says to us is this. Jesus experienced more stress, fear, betrayal, and abandonment than you ever have. He understands the struggles you're going through. He does really understand the struggles you're going through. Maybe you're going through a time in which your friends have betrayed you in some way, or maybe they've abandoned you in some way. Maybe someone close to you has just not lived up to your expectations. Jesus gets that. He understands that. He's experienced that. Maybe you're in a situation that feels like it's too much for you. Jesus understands that. He's been through that. As a human being, Jesus experienced all the pains and the sorrows and the frustrations and disappointments that we've ever been through. The writer of Hebrews captures this really well. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, yet at, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. That is the Jesus that we know. Jesus is the one who says, I get it. I know. I've been there. I know what you're going through. And he can give us mercy and grace in our time of need in that. That leads me to the last point that I want to talk about, which is Jesus as our model. We talked a bit about his mission. We talked about his mortality. And then we want to talk about Jesus as our model. You know, we've seen how Jesus is overwhelmed because this mission that he's given by God is terrifying. It is terrifying. We've seen how his mortality is evident. His humanness is shown here as he's saying, you know, is there a better path? Can we do this differently? Is there an easier way that doesn't cost so much? And also he's just experiencing the letdown of his own friends who have left him and abandoned him. But now we see how Jesus responds to all of this pressure. We see what Jesus does in response. Jesus here gives us a model for how we can face the difficult situations and the inevitable dis disappointments that we have in our lives. Because in this greatest time of need, Jesus goes to prayer. You see that? Jesus is going to prayer. And here's the thing that I think is really important to notice. Jesus' prayer is not long and it's not elegant. It's real and it's raw. It's not big, long, flowery prayer. It's just, here's what's going on, God. <laughs> Help me out here. What I see here is Jesus wrestling in prayer. This is not a calm, peaceful prayer. This is wrestling with prayer. The guy is sweating in this prayer. He's talking with his father, but he's asking his father to change his plan. But what we also see is this in the prayer. Jesus submitting himself to the will of God, even though he'd prefer a different approach or a different outcome. He still is submitting to the will of God, even though he's praying, Abba, Father, notice this, everything is possible for you. Hey, God, I believe that you are sovereign and you can do anything. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Interestingly, Jesus in the same breath, he's asking God to change his plan, but then he's also saying, I'm going to trust you. I am going to trust you with this plan, and I'm going to submit to the way that you have for me. 
And we see Jesus doing this three times. And I think it's interesting. I feel like as I look at this passage and I see Jesus praying these multiple times, and we get a little glimpse of that in the other, uh, the other accounts in the other gospels about this, that uh, Jesus is beginning to grow in his sort of movement towards saying, you know what, God, I'm going to be okay with, you, with this. I'm going to be with you in this. We see in Matthew's account, this second prayer of Jesus, notice the little difference here. He went away a second time and he prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. You sense there's already a little bit of movement there. Can you please change this? Okay, if it's not possible, then, then his move begins to be, okay, then let your will be done. Let me be able to do this and to execute this and to make this happen in the way that you want. It seems to me like this process of prayer is helping even transform him a bit as he's going through this struggle and this wrestling with God. It's shifting his heart towards further obedience to God, I think. So I think a lesson here is this. Prayer may not always change God's mind, but in earnest application, it surely changes ours. It may not always change God's mind, but as we earnestly seek it, it will surely change ours. This model of Jesus, I think, is especially clear as we compare it to the model with the disciples of what's going on with the disciples. You notice when Jesus finds the disciples sleeping, he tells them, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. He's saying, look, you should watch out, be aware, be vigilant, be alert, and in that, pray. In that, pray. So what are they watching for? What should they be watching for? I don't think he's meaning, well, watch out when the soldiers show, soldiers show up so I know when I should stop my prayer. We later on see Jesus is the one that actually knows when that actually is happening. He's actually telling them to watch out for the ways that Satan's going to tempt them to give up on their commitment to him. How they're going to be tempted to abandon their loyalties to him and choose a path of fear in order to save themselves. I think what's going on here is in this garden, both Jesus and the disciples are experiencing some form of temptation in some, in some way. For Jesus, he's being tempted to kind of go, I would love to get out of this plan if possible. He tempted to look for an easier path. For the disciples, they're really going to be tempted very quickly to bail on Jesus, to decide, you know, he was my guy, but I don't know if he's my guy anymore. I'm going to just back off here because this is getting real hot and I don't want to be a part of this. But here we see Jesus wrestling in prayer, and that gives him strength to overcome this temptation. While the disciples are choosing to sleep, and we notice later on they fall in their temptations. You know, I can understand the struggles of the disciples here. How many of you guys wish you could get more sleep? Anyone here? Yeah. I mean, look, it's midnight probably. It's been a long day. They just had a big meal. There's been a lot of new information coming their way, right? It's tough. I mean, I wonder even if they thought, you know, what good is prayer at this point? I could use a little sleep because I'm sure I'll be better for Jesus when I'm a little more rested, right? Be like, you know, prayer, eh, I need some sleep. That's what I need. It seems they forgot the spiritual battle that's going on around them, and they were trying to figure out how to solve it physically. In a way, sleep was an escape for them. Staying awake to pray was the harder thing. You know, this passage, <laughs> it's funny, when you preach a passage, it's in your mind for a little while. And it was in my mind as I woke up at 3 in the morning on Tuesday night, for whatever reason. This happens to me sometimes. Some of you may have the same challenge. You wake up for whatever reason, and then suddenly your mind starts spinning. Oh, there's this thing I've got to, oh man, that thing that's stressing me out. What about this thing with my kids going on? Oh my gosh. And I thought, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I should pray. 
And I thought, no, I want to sleep. I really need to sleep. I would prefer to sleep. I need sleep. I got to sleep, right? So I didn't, and I tried to go to sleep, and I did go back to sleep. Ironically, the next day, the power went out for two days. <laughs> Everything just got harder. And I don't know, the, I don't know if prayer would have made a difference. I never gave it a chance. I was trying to get some sleep. When things are difficult or stressful, do we escape or do we wrestle with God in prayer? Do we escape or do we wrestle with God in prayer? Jesus says to all of us, just like he did for his disciples, watch and pray. Look at what's going on around you. Look at what's happening in your life and the life of those around you. Look at what's happening in the world and pray. Wrestle in prayer. You know, I'm part of the pastoral leadership team of our church, and it's a great group of people of lay leaders and pastors that we get together, and we get together a monthly, and we talk about what's going on pastorally in the church. So we talk about small groups, and we talk about the sermon series, and we talk about how do we uh, connect better with the more marginalized in our community, and we have a lot of robust discussions and lots of things to talk about. What happened, though, is we discovered in these meetings that we would really often run out of time to pray. We talk, 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 and it's like, oh, oh my gosh, it's okay, let's just close in prayer kind of thing. And that did not feel right to us. So we had to, we had to add another meeting in our month, which was challenging, like, oh, we're already busy, but let's add another meeting. But we created a Zoom meeting, and we gather together, and we just pray. That's really what we do is just to pray because we realized that we weren't making the time for it and we needed to do that. I've also been joining our Zoom prayer on Wednesday. Clarissa's part of that and a number of, I think four to five of us gather together Wednesday at noon and we gather together on Zoom and we pray and we pray for things that are going on in the church and we pray for things that are going on in the world and we pray for things that are going on in our lives. And I got to tell you, there are many times I'm like, I have other things to do. I'm, really, I'm dealing with two jobs and all the craziness but as I've begun to do this and made this a discipline, I really find myself missing when I do miss. And I really enjoy being part of it because we join together and wrestle with God in prayer together. I want to encourage you to consider that as a way, even if praying on your own is hard, sometimes praying with other people is a really good way to, to handle that. I think our lesson here is this. Jesus wrestled in prayer and was strengthened to obey God. How much more do we need to be grasping hold of prayer in our times of testing? How much more do we need to be grasping hold of prayer in our times of testing? Don't let prayer be your last resort. Let it be your first resort. You know, there's always that, oh, oh, nothing left I can do but pray. <laughs> well, maybe that's the first thing we should think about doing. And remember the model of Jesus. His prayers here are not long and complex. It doesn't need to be flowery, but it was real and it was heartfelt. You can tell God what you're thinking. It's not like it's a surprise to him. You can actually tell him what you're thinking. And again, there's Jesus who's always there going, yeah, I know. I've been there. I hear you. Let's talk. You know, we saw today how Jesus was terrified in the garden because the scope of the mission that had been given to him by God was to drink the cup of God's judgment, and that was terrifying. His mission was huge. We saw how his mortality was tested and how he was still having to be obedient to his God's plan in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of what was going to come. And we saw how even in that battle, he modeled submission. He modeled trust in God in the midst of things that were really difficult. And he went to prayer, and in that prayer was how he chose to follow God's will over his own. You know, the Bible calls Jesus the second Adam. Like the first Adam, 
Jesus fought a battle with temptation in a garden. But unlike the first Adam, the second Adam chose to submit his will to his father's plan, fully knowing that that would lead to his own horrible death. But in that, it would also lead to glory for him and salvation for everyone. He wasn't dumb. He knew what God was going to do through this, but it also meant real pain for him. In fact, Jesus' choice in this garden was so much harder than the choice of the first Adam. So much harder. He saw what was coming, and he still had to choose to follow God. But Jesus chose to obey the Father, unlike the first Adam and Adam and Eve, and he submitted to this cup of judgment. And those of us who trust in Jesus as our Savior don't have to experience that ourselves. And so for us, I think... We just need to remember that and grab hold of that. Paul says this really well in his letter to the Romans. He says, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For justice through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many were made righteous. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you, this season of Lent is a time to really think about what it is that Jesus did for us, and to be aware of what it means. And I, you know, if you've been a Christian a long time, you may be like, oh, you know, Jesus took my sins away. Yay, woohoo, you know, but like, like really to just grasp hold of what he really did, that he really took that judgment, that separation, that wrath of God all to himself so that you wouldn't have to. So I want to encourage you in this time of Lent, just think about that and rejoice in that sacrifice that has been given to you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to, I want to just say to you, don't treat your death casually. Don't plan your vacations and your retirement plan more than you think about what's going to happen when you die. Because Jesus has found, made a way for you to not experience judgment. But you do have to choose to follow him. And I want to encourage you to look at, consider that and to do that. And I think for all of us, just like Jesus was modeling for us, let's be people who choose prayer over escape. Choosing prayer over escape, even when that's inconvenient and hard, because often that is what it is. Because I think it's through that real conversation that we can have with God that He can transform us, and He can draw us closer to be able to say, not my will, but yours be done, Lord. As Jesus told his disciples, watch and pray. So let me pray. Lord, we just come to you and we just are awestruck by <clears throat> what you did for us. That you saw in front of you the full magnitude of the judgment and yet you said yes knowing what it would mean for you, but also because you loved us. And I thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for that mercy and that act of grace for us. And Lord, we do ask that you would strengthen us to be people who watch and pray. Father, we, we know that like the disciples, the spirit is willing, but often the flesh is weak. And so, Father, we pray that your spirit would overcome that, that by the power of your spirit, you would engage us in being people of prayer, that you would draw us to be people of prayer, that you would just cause us to just want to be people of prayer, Father, that that would be the first place we go, that you would cause that to be something that we do as, as your people. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.